Oh, the blue book, either under your chair if you're in the back or in the pew right in front of you to page 975. The reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 6. We are blessed this morning to have sharing the word of God with us, Pete Hatton. Pete's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. Pete's father is with us this morning over on this side. Pete is the husband of Kristen and three uh, children. He's currently the director of Reformed University Fellowship at Baylor University. And so we thank the Lord that he's with us today and sharing the word of God with us today. Um, The passage for today is Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Pete, come on up if you would. Father, thank you for this brother. Um, Use him this morning to share the word of God with us. May Christ be large and Pete be small, even though we have a, a... Friend, not known well to us today, um, let us concentrate on what he has to say and not the uh, newness of his delivery to our ears and so on. Bless us, Lord. Help us to uh, hear your word now. And may it change us just a little bit that we might glorify Christ in all we say and do. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, it was two years ago when I first saw this church. I've heard many things about it. And we had a presbytery meeting here. And the first thought that went through my mind when I stepped through those doors was, wow, could you imagine preaching from this pulpit? So I had been begging Darwin for two years to get me up here. And finally, uh, he has allowed me to do it. Our schedule's worked out. There's a sad fact to the horrors of war. And it involves the wounding and the killing of soldiers by their own men. Even though many precautions have been made to deter what is known as friendly fire, statistics say that at least 2% of all American casualties in the Gulf War were caused by friendly fire. Military analysts say that the term used to describe how soldiers can be killed by those fighting on the same side is called the fog of war, where noise, smoke, faulty communications, tension, hyperactivity, fear... All of these things conspire to mask from the soldier and his leaders the true situation on the battlefield. When accurate information regarding the location and activity of both friendly and enemy forces is lacking, one result is often the unintentional firing upon one's own troops. And the most famous casualty of friendly fire is football star Pat Tillman. 
He was killed while trying to rescue his wounded men in Afghanistan. Pat Tillman walked away from a $3.6 million contract with the Arizona Cardinals in order to serve his country and to fight against terrorism. News reports have determined that U.S. Army Ranger Pat Tillman died from friendly fire while his unit was in combat with enemy forces. One report said that Tillman's unit was being ambushed by Afghan rebels and the truck that Tillman was in after it had already passed this ambush, the report stated that Tillman ordered the truck to turn around in order to help those men who were caught. And what another report said, the firefight lasted about 20 minutes. Still another report had Tillman leaving the truck to assist three men who were pinned down by enemy fire. And amidst the chaos and the turmoil, it is believed that Pat Tillman was killed by friendly fire. But what is yet to be determined is exactly how. Our text this morning points out the tragic fact that Christians who become wounded in the war against their flesh are at risk of being even more wounded by other Christians and their friendly fire. The context of chapter 6 is on the heels of what Paul has been arguing in chapter 5. And what Paul has been proposing in chapter 5 of Galatians is that the Christian life is a life of war. There are enemies outside of us and there is an enemy inside of us. Both of these enemies seek to recapture and enslave us again by driving us away from finding our fullness in Christ towards trying to fill our emptiness with the things of this world or with ourselves or with other people. The enemies outside of us are false teachers, those who pervert and distort the gospel with their false teaching. And they do this by either adding to the gospel or by taking glory away from the gospel. Their teaching is identified as false because it is not grounded and rooted in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to accomplish a perfect and completed salvation. So whenever somebody adds to the work of Christ by placing a demand or a requirement that you must follow in order to truly be saved, according to Paul, that person's teaching is a perversion and a distortion of the one true gospel. And the reason why is because this type of teaching that either adds to the work of Christ or subtracts from the work of Christ does not lead to freedom. Rather, it leads to slavery. Look at verse one of chapter five. This is the theme verse of the whole book. Paul says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, and the verb tense here is very significant because it means keep always continually standing firm or another way to translate it might be keep always continually fighting and do not let yourself be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then in verses 2 through 12 of chapter 5, Paul tells us that we are to fight for our freedom by fencing off these false teachers and their false teachings. By not allowing them into the church. In verse 9, Paul tells us that these false teachers, if they are allowed into the church, will creep in and corrupt the church the same way a little bit of leaven can creep in and corrupt the whole lump of dough. So there is a war that is waged outside of us against false teachers and their false teaching. But there is also a war that is waged within us as well. And this war is between the flesh and the spirit. Look at verse 17 of chapter five. 
Paul says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, Paul's use for the flesh here in Galatians five in the book, it has different meanings. But here in chapter five, it's referring to our fallen nature that is controlled by sin. And one commentator, I like the way he defined it, says this. The flesh is the ego, which feels an emptiness and uses the resources in its own power to try to fill it. It is the I who tries to satisfy me with anything and everything other than God. I would propose to you that there are three things that can characterize the flesh. First, it is self-absorbed. The flesh is obsessed with self. The flesh is preoccupied with self. It is self-absorbed. Second, it is self-reliant. It is not submissive to God. In fact, it flees from God. It doesn't want anything to do with God. It doesn't think that it needs God and therefore it runs from God. But where does it run to? Self. Third, it is self-worshipping. The flesh seeks to exalt itself above all things, above other people and especially above God. To sum it up, the flesh desires to be God. And because it desires to be God, it will never be filled. So it will always be hungry. It will always be seeking. It will always be empty and long to be filled. Now, we just got one of those new Dyson vacuum cleaners. You know how it's advertised is that it's the one that has such great suction. And the reason why is because it never gets clogged. The flesh is like that Dyson vacuum cleaner. It sucks and it sucks and it sucks, but it never gets filled. In its emptiness, the flesh hungers to be filled and there is never a time when it does not seek its own exaltation or its own satisfaction. And for the Christian, it is always, Paul says, waging war within them against the spirit. And this is the comforting part. Because the normal Christian life, then, if this is true, is not a life of constant victory over sin. It is a life of fighting against and struggling with my sin. A true Christian is not one who never sins, but one who, because of the spirit, fights against and struggles with their sin. So Paul in chapter five is setting forth to us that the Christian life is a life of war. But in this war, God has given us a weapon. The only defense in the war that wages within every Christian is to wield the weapon of the spirit and to walk according to his power. Look at verse 16 of chapter five. Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, I'm going to elaborate a little bit more later on on how we are to walk according to the spirit's power. But let's think of it this way. If the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and we saw that the flesh desires what it's characterized as is self-absorbed, self-reliant and self-worshipping. And because of that, it can never be filled. If this is what the flesh desires, then the spirit desires that we be absorbed in Christ. 
and that we be absorbed in others. That we depend and rely upon Christ to be everything that we are not in and of ourselves and to worship him alone. And think of it. If we do become absorbed in Christ and in others, if we do rely and depend on Christ and we do worship him alone, then we will be filled to a fullness. Now, the concern for Paul in chapter six is that in this war, there are many who are going to get wounded. And the reason why they are going to get wounded is because they are going to try to find their fullness in something other than Christ. In other words, our wounds are a direct result of not walking by the spirit, but by our walking according to the flesh, because when we walk according to the flesh, we sin. And when we sin, the war within us intensifies because of the guilt and the shame that we feel. When the guilt arises, we become uncertain, uncertain of God's love for us, uncertain of how God feels about us, uncertain of our standing before him. And this uncertainty is because of doubt. And when doubt and uncertainty Arise together, we wonder whether our standing before God is still secure. So when we are uncertain of our standing before God and when we are insecure of his love towards us, what are we left with? A feeling of emptiness. The emptiness, the insecurity and the uncertainty, these are the wounds. That ache within our soul and that cause this pain that longs to be filled. And when sin wounds the soul, the flesh seeks to divert your attention away from the only thing that you can find healing. The only place and the only person that can heal you. You see, the flesh doesn't want us to rest in Christ. The flesh wants us to run to self. And to try to fill ourselves fill the emptiness either with ourselves or with the things of the world or it seeks to cause us to fix our sin problem through our own power and through our own efforts so when we try to fix our own sin problem through our own power and through our own efforts or when we try to fill our emptiness with something other than Christ our wounds get even deeper and so does the pain And so does the hurt that it causes. And then to add to that, Paul tells us in Galatians 6 that there's a tragic fact. That Christians who are already wounded can be wounded even more by other Christians and their friendly fire. So in chapter 6, Paul is not changing topics from what he'd been talking about in chapter 5. He's changing scenery. You see, in chapter five, Paul is giving us the picture of the Christian life as a battlefield. There's a war and here's this battlefield. It's waged within us. But then in chapter six, he moves from the battlefield to the hospital. So at times, the body of Christ, the church. Is to serve as ER nurses. Who fix, lift, carry, support. Mend 
and help those who are wounded in the war against their flesh. In order to restore them gently back to health. So at times the church should look more like an emergency room in a hospital than the recovery room. And I need to say what I'm about to say because I see this every day. If Christians don't find their fullness in Christ and walk by the power of his spirit, then the wounded are going to bleed out and die. If Christians don't come alongside those who are wounded and help them, there is no hope for the, those who are wounded to find healing. If the church does not function as a hospital at times, where else can the wounded go to get the proper treatment that they need to be restored back to health? In other words, this sermon is going to be a plea, a plea for the body of Christ to find its fullness in Christ so that it will display the love of Christ. By serving as his hands and his feet and coming to the aid of those who are wounded to bear their burdens, to lift, to carry a weight that those who are wounded cannot. And brothers and sisters, we don't need to look very far to see the wounded, do we? Because they're all around us. There are people in this city whose sin has left them so numb and they feel so dead inside, they will take sharp objects and cut themselves just to feel alive. There are people who are so consumed with the guilt of their sin that they turn to alcohol or they turn to drugs not just to try to escape, but to try to numb the pain that they feel. And the hopes that if I could just have some relief, if it's an hour, two hours, whatever, if I can just get some relief from the pain and the guilt and the shame that I feel, I will do it. And there are those who struggle with such a deep depression that they cannot get out of bed in the morning. Hope is dwindling for them. And they feel like they can't get out of bed and carry on through another day because of the despair that they find themselves in. There are those who are so afraid of not measuring up to other people's expectations that suicide seems to be the only option, the only way out. There are those who are so worried about their appearance that they make themselves throw up after every meal because they're so worried that they'll get fat. And if they get fat, then no one will like me. No one will accept me and no one will love me. And then there are those who have lost loved ones. And no matter how hard they try to get on with their lives, there is an ache in their soul that will not go away. And then there are those who are trying to cope with divorce and trying to raise their kids without a spouse and hold down a job. And there are children who, because of their parents' divorce, wonder if unconditional love really exists. And they have a hard time believing that God could love them perfectly because they've never seen it modeled to them and their parents. And I can go on and on, couldn't I? If Christians don't help, who will? If the church is not a place for the wounded to be mended, then where else are they going to go when their burdens are too heavy for them to carry? Brothers and sisters, the clearest way to know whether you are not walking by the spirit, but are walking by the flesh is when your heart stops beating in compassion for those who are wounded. Or when you see the wounds of others and you do nothing about it. 
So what Galatians six shows us is that when Christ is our fullness, we will walk by the spirit and we will bear one another's burdens. But what's interesting is that the focus of verses one through five is not on those who are wounded. It is on those who seek to help those who are wounded. So what our text is meant to do, it is meant to clear up this fog of war. That one might have about themselves that might lead to more incidents of friendly fire where Christians will be even more wounded by other Christians. What's the situation in verses one through five? Easy. Paul is addressing Christians who are wounded either by their own sin or by some other burden that's too heavy for them to carry. The command is simple. It's easy. It's straightforward. Bear one another's burdens. And notice that Paul doesn't define what those burdens are. Bear one another's burdens, no matter what they are. But there's a warning. And Paul spends four verses on that warning. And the warning is not directed to the one caught in sin, nor is it directed to the one who can't carry a heavy load. The warning is directed to those who seek to help those who are burdened. Look at verse one. Only those who are spiritual should seek to restore a broken believer. But notice what Paul says, but he or she must be careful. Lest you too be tempted. Which raises the question, what is the temptation that those who seek to help need to watch out for? What is it that they might fall prey to? Answer, pride. Pride. The temptation is to be conceited and to think too highly of yourselves when you see those who are wounded by sin. It is to think that you are better than those who are wounded because you haven't fallen like they have. You're still standing. You haven't done what they've done to become wounded. The temptation will be to compare yourself to those who have fallen and to take pride in the fact that I haven't done what they have done. And look at where I am. Look at where they're at. The temptation will be to think that you are better, that you are more spiritual, that you are above stooping down. To help others. So to clear up this foggy notion. To clear up the fog of war. That might cause friendly fire. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. To clear up the fact that those who are not wounded are better. More spiritual than those who are wounded. Look at what Paul says. For if anyone thinks he is something. When he is nothing. He deceives himself. So the warning is directed to those who are in a fog about who they really are. Because if that fog of being conceited and comparing yourself to those who are wounded is not lifted, then when you seek to help others, you will actually add more hurt to others. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to answer this question in three ways. How are we to walk by the spirit and bear one another's burdens? We need to bow down, we need to bow up, and we need to boast only in the cross. And here's what I want to propose to you. When the cross is your only boast, you will bow down to the desires of King Jesus. 
and you will bow up in His power and bear one another's burdens. Main point number one, bow down. Look at verse two. Notice who Paul is connecting this command to. Bearing one another's burdens is Jesus's command. It is a requirement and the demand laid down by King Jesus. The one who bore our burdens is commanding us to bear the burdens of others. And because he bore our burdens, we are now able to bear one another's burdens. Because he has borne your burdens, you have been set free from your enslavement to the flesh's self-absorbing, self-reliant and self-worshipping desires. You have been set free from the flesh's desires in order to be absorbed in the glory of Christ and his desires. You have been set free from your autonomy in order to be dependent on him to be for you all that you are not in and of yourself. You have been set free from self-worship so that you could worship Him. You have been set free from thinking only of yourself so that you could be free to think of others and to bear their burdens. In other words, as Christians, what am I saying? You are no longer your own. In fact, you never have been. It is the flesh that made you think that. You belong to King Jesus. You belong to the one who purchased you with his own blood. You have no right over your own life anymore. You now belong to him. So bow down to the one who bore your burden and set you free. Bow down to King Jesus. Because when you realize you're not your own, you are more open to see the wounds, the hurts, and the needs of others. Because Jesus will bring them into your life. Because he wants you to help carry their load. Because he knows they can't. When you live as if you have ownership over your own life, however, you're going to view the wounded as an inconvenience or as an interruption to your agenda. Because you are not your own, you have no right. Here's an implication of this. An implication of not being your own. You have no right to ignore the wounds of your Christian brothers or sisters when you see them. Look at verse 1. Caught in any trespass. This word caught carries the phrase and the connotation. These things are sins that catch people off guard or by surprise. They are sins that people commit that they might not even recognize. Or they are sins that they do recognize but they have become so enslaved by it that they can't get out from under it. Only Christ can forgive and repair them. He is the doctor. We are not. We are nurses and we are to serve as nurses who are to mend and gently restore them back to health. But how? By leading them to the doctor. By leading them to the only one who can heal them. By leading them to the only one who can fix them and restore them and lighten their load. In other words, a nurse sometimes is going to have to confront the sinner of their sin. And at other times, a nurse is going to have to comfort the one burdened by their sin. 
because the word restore in verse one has two connotations. And it's interesting. It's a medical term for setting a fractured bone. But it's also a fishing term and the way that fishermen would restore and mend their nets that have a tear in it. So when you see your brother or sister going out to the bars every night until 3 a.m. Or not coming home. You ought to confront them in a spirit of gentleness. In order to mend what is torn in their life or to straighten them out. When you see your sister avoiding meals or eating portions that are smaller than my seven year old daughter, Rebecca, and what she eats. Or when you see her leaving to go to the bathroom after every meal, you cannot sit by and say, that's her problem. That's not mine. Or when you observe your brother spending more time at the office or volunteering to go on business trips that he really doesn't have to go on. So that he doesn't have to go home and face the chaos of a house filled with kids or an exhaustive and unresponsive wife. Or if he's spending more time with a female co-worker than his wife. You can't sit by and wait for him to see what he's really doing. He needs to know that in his emptiness, he is seeking a fullness apart from Christ and he's never going to find it. And if he doesn't figure that out and he doesn't see it, that emptiness is going to destroy him. It's going to destroy his marriage and it's going to destroy his family. And when someone comes to you completely broken over the sin that they have committed and they confide in you and confess it to you. Brothers and sisters, they don't need your shock. And your look of horror over what they have done. They don't need your self-righteous condemnation. They need your comfort. They need to hear about the one who bore their burden. They need to know that there is hope that they can change. They need to hear about God's grace and how God loves to be merciful to people who don't deserve it. Wounded people need you to walk through their pain with them. They need you to listen to them. They need you to support them. They need you to rebuke them if necessary. But they need you to comfort, correct, and confront. And I have to move on. But the point of verse 1, this is not a warning against confronting, correcting, or comforting another believer in order to restore them. It is a warning against doing it arrogantly. So bow down to the one who bore your burdens and bear one another's burdens, no matter what those burdens are. Main point number two, you need to bow up. Because the load that others carry is heavy. And you know what I mean by that? I'm not talking about when guys get together and it's like, you bowing up at me? I'm not talking about the fleshes swelling up with pride. Paul makes it clear in verses three through five. That's not what he means. What I'm referring to is a swelling up with the spirit's power to produce his fruit in your life that you cannot produce on your own. This is why Paul says in verse one that only those who are spiritual should be the ones who seek to gently restore a broken believer. Now, Paul is not referring to some elite class of super spiritual saint who never struggles with sin. 
That's not what he means by spiritual here. The context tells us that the spiritual one is the one who walks by the spirit and relies on the spirit's power to do for him or her what they cannot do for themselves. Look at how the one who is spiritual is to restore the one who has fallen into sin. How? In a spirit of what? Gentleness. And if I'm not mistaken, in Paul's list in chapter five, verses 22 through 23, when he says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. That's his fruit. That's the spirit's fruit. That's not your fruit. It's not a fruit of the flesh, which means you need his power to produce his fruit. You can't do this on your own power and only the spirit can produce this in you. So if you bow up with the flesh's pride instead of with the spirit's power, you are only going to increase the load and the weight upon those who are already burdened. If you bow up with pride instead of the spirit's power, you will walk according to the flesh and you will give the flesh an opportunity to express itself. Which will lead you to ignore the wounds of others. It will lead you to elevate yourself above others. Which is going to leave those who are burdened all alone to carry it. And they can't. So the question is, how do we bow up in the spirit's power? God, help me to find the courage to confront my friend who is wounded by their sin and they can't see it. Jesus, reflect your character in my life so that I may do it with gentleness and not be harsh and not be condemnatory and not be self-righteously condemning of them. Jesus, guard my heart from being conceited and help me not to compare myself with them. Jesus, I too am weak. I too am full of sin. I too am burdened and I need your help so that I can help to carry so-and-so's burden. God, help me not to be so consumed with my agenda, my wants and my desires that I'm blind to the hurts and the needs and the wounds of others. Jesus, give me the words to say to comfort this person. Help me to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Help me to lead them to you to fix their problems rather than feeling like I always have to fix and solve their problems because I can't. Main point number three, we can bow down and bow up because our only boast is in the cross. Look at verse 14. This really is Paul's argument for the whole book. This is the focal point of the whole book. In fact, it's the focal point of Paul's whole life. May it never be that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in this context, verse 14 is the focal point, not only for those who are being burdened, By their sin or some other load that they can't carry. But it's also the focal point for those who seek to help those who are burdened. And it's a strange boast, is it not? May I never boast except in the electric chair. May I never boast except in lethal injection. May I never boast except in the very thing that executed our Lord Jesus 
Christ. The word for boast also means exult. May I never exult in anything but what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Why? Why is this Paul's boast? Why is this the focal point of Galatians 5 and 6 in this war? But quite frankly, why is it Paul's obsession in his whole life? What does he say to the church at Corinth? When I was with you, I sought to know nothing except Christ Jesus and him crucified. You read Paul's letters and you see he is consumed with Christ crucified on the cross. And the question is, why? Why is the cross the focal point for those who are being burdened? And why is it the focal point for those who seek to help? Answer, because every good thing we have from God, every blessing that God gives flows from what Christ did on Calvary's tree. Christ has done everything necessary for us and for our complete salvation. Therefore, Jesus is now everything to us. He is our pardon. He is our perfection. He is our forgiveness. He is our fullness. He is our freedom. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Because of the cross, the time for exalting himself is over. Because of the cross, the time for thinking that you're better than somebody else, it's over. Because of the cross, the time for thinking that you're more deserving of God's blessing than somebody else because of something you've done and they haven't, is over. The time for thinking that you are stronger than somebody else because you're standing and they did not. Because of the cross, that time is over. Because the cross is where all of my failures to love God and love others were heaped upon the one who never failed to love God and never failed to love others. On the cross is where we see just how far Jesus will stoop to help carry the weight of our heavy burdens. Because it is on the cross where Jesus gently pushes us aside and says, Dear child, I will carry this load for you because I know it is too heavy for you to carry. I will suffer. I will walk the road of humiliation so that you can live in my glory. I will become poor so that through my poverty, you could become rich. I will take your place. I will receive the blows of justice that were meant to strike you. I will face my father's wrath and be forsaken by him so that you could always have my father's favor. Dear child, do you see why I must bear your burden? Because you can't. That's a burden too heavy for us to bear. And because he bore it, he set us free so we could boast only in him. And when we boast only in him, we can bow up in his power in order to bear one another's burdens. Brothers and sisters, this is the king who's commanding us. The one who's commanding us to bear one another's burdens bore our burdens. Let me pray.
Jesus, we give you great thanks that you did not leave us in our sins. That you left heaven. That you entered our experience. You took on flesh. And you understand everything that we go through. You understand all of our weaknesses. You understand all of our temptations. And you took pity on us. When no one else would. We thank you that you suffered for us and you died for us. So that we might live for you. And I pray that you would help us. Help us to boast only in what you have done. Help us to bow up in your power. To bow down to your will. So we can bear one another's burdens. Because there are many who can't carry a load. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.